Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Thanks for joining us again. I'm your host, Marco Palmieri, and with me is my most excellent co-host, Diana Foe. Oh, I always feel so welcomed in a studio, Marco. You never seem to leave me hanging. <laughs> I'm sensing that's a reference to our next story, but let me ask you something first. Are you into tarot? Astrology? That sort of thing? Kind of? Uh, I think it's because Mercury always seems to be in retrograde, right? It's at least for like 75% of the time. 75, 80%, you know, <laughs> it, it varies, but yeah. Yeah, I, I did, however, have an interesting aura reading done for me once when I attended a performance of the Scottish play many years ago. Oh. Yeah, that person said I had a female spirit watching over me and she had been there my entire life. And I kind of like thinking I have some sort of protector spirit. I can see that. And if I have a protector spirit, I imagine them constantly facepalming themselves as I go through my day. But as for tarot, I've never had a reading, but I imagine it would probably be pretty comical. Well, speaking of fortunes told, our heroine's fate hangs up in the air, literally and figuratively, after getting a dire tarot reading as her brother battles her uncle for the throne. So let's see what the cards hold for our protagonist in The Gates of Jorian by Kate Elliott, narrated by Rachel Fulgeniti. The magicians say the sun rises every morning, and so far I have found that to be true. I depend on the sun. It is how I mark time. By that, and by the food the woman brings me twice daily, and by the unending cycle of the moon. I have discovered also that the stars move in the sky each night, when they are not obscured by clouds, and that I can trace pictures in them, and see those pictures again and again, if only I am patient enough at night and through the seasons. I try to sleep during the day, except for the food. During the day it is worse, for then there are people about, and all of them eager to abuse me. The magicians taught about the stars also, but I did not listen to them about those matters. I was a younger woman. How much younger, 
I no longer know, and newly married. My nights did not involve gazing at stars. Now some of what they said has come back to me, and I hoard it. I must hoard what scraps I can, because as the days run one into the next, I lose more and more of my past. Like the moon, my memory waxes and wanes. But I must remember. If I do not remember, then I become nothing, a mindless animal in a cage hung before the gates of Jorian. And then the king wins, and my brother loses. I remember the magicians. Duncan was gone, ridden out to raise the Alarn clan behind the standard of war. Anyone would have noticed their entrance, but that day, distracted and feeling sorry for myself because of my husband of but one month had been sent away on my brother's errand, I was overwhelmed by it. They entered like moonlight and sunlight and the twilight between. The first wore a robe of silver fabric so pale that at first I thought I could see through it. Only later did I realize I could see into it, like staring into the heavens at night. Small of stature, no bigger than a woman. He had neat hands, eyes the bleached color of the noonday sky washed in clouds, and a nose too big for his face. But he had power. It rode on him like a second garment. The woman towered above the others, as big as a warrior and thicker through the middle. She had skin the color of charcoal, burned black, and robes so voluminous and of such a startlingly piercing gold that she seemed like the billowing sun fallen down to earth, scorching and bright. I almost could not look at her straight on. But the third entered in their shadow, like a shadow, and this one's gaze sought and found me, in my own shadowed corner where I spun wool to thread and waited for my husband to return. Is that not the lot of women? To wait. The third waited until I stared, and then beckoned to me, while my brother and his advisors were busy with the first two magicians, swarming round them as moths swarm round any bright light. And these lights, brighter than most, king in name only, half his countrymen in league with the usurper, and the other half too poor to do more than scrabble at the dirt of their farms to save themselves and their kin from starvation. My brother needed help wheresoever he could find it, even from magicians. I set down my spindle to rise and cross the long hall. Closer now, I shook off my distraction and studied the visitors. The small moon man, the big sun woman, and the other, the third, the twilight between. Not tall, not short. This one wore robes that were neither striped nor of a solid color either, a dusky gray that held night in it and also the coming of morning. Long-fingered hands cupped a deck of cards, as another might cup a fistful of gold rings or a child's hand. But it was her face I returned to again and again. Or perhaps I should say his face. 
beardless. I might have guessed at once that this was a woman, but upon a second look, despite the lack of beard, I would have said it was a man. His, her, complexion was like to that of a lover seen in half-light as day fades or night lightens. You are the sister, he said, her voice so soft I could barely hear it above the ring of voices in the hall, my brother and his captains, lords and fighting men whose loyalty to the rightful heir was greater than their prudence, for certainly our uncle the king had usurped my brother's throne because he had the strength and the riches of the southern lords to back him up. Our uncle the king was not a foolish man, nor did he let ambition rule over common sense. But I was only a girl and my brother an infant in swaddling clothes when first our father died and our mother soon after, poisoned by our uncle, so the rumor ran, Made regent, he found it easy enough to take over the duties and privileges of the crown outright and send the poor children, myself and my brother, away to the benighted North Country, easy enough to put them in the care of a certain ambitious duke who would not be above seeing the two children die of a winter chill or an untimely accident. But we were stronger than that. It is said, remarked the twilight mage, that you raised your brother, that you led him through dark night and cruel winds to this castle, your safe haven protected through the years by your father's most loyal retainers. Is that true? When he was old enough to walk, we escaped our keepers together, I said, and then added tartly, though it wasn't in a winter storm, as some say, even as a girl I wasn't so foolish as to try such a thing. There was an old woman in the house who pitied us, and it was through her offices that we survived as long as we did in the hall of the Duke of Jorian. I waited until a clear, warm summer's night, and she gave us bread and cheese and water. She had arranged for a cousin to meet us at a fishing village at the coast, not more than an hour's walk away. The cousin took us north and eventually, by one means and another, got us to Islamay Castle. I needed only to lead us out of Jorian and out to the village. It was no great journey. Nevertheless, said the mage, your brother would never have grown to manhood without you. Perhaps, I said evasively. I did not like this kind of praise, though I had heard it more than once. My brother was a strong, clean, good man, if rather too fond of pretty young women, and he had to be respected for his strength, not for mine. That was the only way he could regain the throne stolen from him. The mage opened his hands to display the cards. With a deft movement, he flipped one over and laid it on the table between two burning candles. The card had a picture on it, whose like I had never seen before, a woman, crowned and robed in a simple manner, holding a strong wooden staff in one hand. Queen of staves, the mage said. She is strong and independent and will gladly fight for that which is rightfully hers. I snorted, having heard this kind of thing also, before Duncan laid claim to my heart and my brother with my approval, granted him my hand in marriage. 
however desperate my brother's plight, however unlikely his prospects might seem, with only a handful of dirt-poor lords as his allies, and for his soldiers only common-bred captains and farmers, who had but one season in which to march on campaign before they had to return to their farms, there were always a few men who thought to gain my brother's ear through my, well, how shall we say it, through my favors. I gave them short shrift and had shouted more than one out of Islamay Castle. And she is known sometimes to be short-tempered, the mage added with a quicksilver smile that charmed me utterly. It's a pretty picture, I said, reaching out to touch the card. But I hesitated before laying my finger on the thin painted card. I felt as strongly as if a voice had shouted in my ear that this was not mine to touch, not without permission. You may, the mage said softly. It is you, after all. So I did touch her. I felt the film of paint under my finger, touched her stern face and her stout stave that had a single leafing green branch growing from the upraised end. We call this card the Significator, the mage continued. It signifies the person whose fortune we tell with these cards. I laughed. Are you going to tell my fortune? Do you have a question you want answered? I smiled, thinking of Duncan and of long summer nights, thinking of our greatest wish, when we whispered together and held each other tight. Was it shameful that, this time, my first thought was not for my brother and our struggle? I don't know. But I was newly wed, and Duncan was, for this summer at least, my world. Where will I be next year? I asked, dreaming of Duncan holding a baby, our baby, while I sat sewing beside him. Sewing, perhaps, the child's naming gown, or my brother's coronation robes. The major's expression turned dour, like a lowering storm. Very well. I thought the tone disapproving. I was suddenly apprehensive. I can ask something else. You have already asked, the mage said. And it is true enough, as with my brother that some enterprises once begun must be played out to the bitter end. If you will, shuffle the deck. He placed the cards in my hands and showed me how to divide them and combine them again, like lords in a dance of evasion and persuasion. Whose side will I come down on this year? When I had finished shuffling them to her satisfaction, he took them from me again and began to lay out the cards into a strange pattern on the table. I could not help but watch. There was a hall behind us and people milling there, but they might as well have vanished for all the attention I paid them. All my attention was on the cards placed so carefully, so precisely, between the two burning candles. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Island in Frigid Lake Superior. A fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. The first card he laid directly on top of the Queen of Staves. Placed atop the Significator. It represents the current situation, the Four of Staves. He smiled slightly as he spoke the words, represents marriage. It is crossed by. Crossed by? Crossed by, he repeated, placing a card athwart it, the King of Swords. My uncle, I breathed, for although the card did not portray my uncle's actual face, it did indeed represent his aspect, a robed and crowned king, stern of face, armed with a sword. The king's position was unassailable. Many people said so. Those people had no doubt predicted my brother and I would be dead within the year, eighteen years ago, when our father and mother died. We had proved them wrong. The mage continued. At the base of matters, the Ace of Swords— the beginnings of conflict, what is passing away, the two of cups, happiness in romance. I caught in a laugh, not wanting to show him open disrespect, as if what Duncan and I shared could ever pass away. What crowns the matter, how the situation appears now, the nine of staves, a pause in the midst of battle, what is coming into being, the Three of Swords. Heartbreak. Now, and only now, the mage paused. He hesitated, and I was suddenly afraid. I felt the crawl of the evil eye on my back, even as I heard laughter in the hall behind me. The candles burned evenly. The mage turned a gentle eye to me and smiled sadly. I must go on, she said, for once begun. A reading must be ended. That is the way of life itself. Of course, 
I said, refusing to surrender to this sudden, crawling fear. Go on. I would not give in to my weakness. Everyone knew that fortune-telling is for the superstitious and gullible. Even in such a guise as this, for he asked no coin of me, nor nothing in trade. And they say that is the sign of a true magician. He laid a card to the right of the cross he had made of the others. This card represents you, she said, your inner being, strength. The card depicted a woman, unafraid, holding a lion. This next card represents what influences you, the knight of swords. A fierce and determined knight rode forward into the fray. Is this your husband? No, I said wonderingly, not knowing how I knew. That is my brother. Ah, said the mage, and turned another card. Your wishes and fears. The hanged man. I shuddered when he spoke those three words, for our uncle had promised us hanging, an outlaw's death should he ever catch us. He hated us that much for living and surviving and daring to contest what he had gained through treachery. But this hanged man was not a gruesome sight. He hung upside down with the rope around his ankle, and he seemed utterly calm, a light of wisdom shining behind his head. The hanged man represents waiting, said the mage, suspension, and the last card lies here above and to the right of all else. It signifies the outcome. The outcome of what? Of your question. Where will I be next year? He turned it over slowly, and I watched, staring, breath held in. His whisper coincided with my hissed breath. Eight of swords. Eight swords, stuck point-first into the ground and between them, bound by their sharp steel, stood a woman shackled by ropes. Mary! The voice from the other side of the hall startled me out of my shocked contemplation of the horrible card. My brother's voice rang out, strong and true, as he was strong and true the rightful heir. You must come and meet our guests. Mary, that is my name. I remember it now. The folk who come in and out of the gates of Jorian about their business on their way to and from the fields or the market shout it sometimes, but as a curse. Mary, they shout. Hang that whore, Mary. They call me slut and traitor, bastard and demon, apostate, heretic, cunt and witch. They shouted it more often at first, when the Duke of Jorian's men built and barred this cage, and locked me inside it, and winched it up to hang, suspended by rope and supported by wooden pillars, beside the central gates that lead into the town and castle of Jorian. They came in packs, in mobs, to jeer at me, and then I was thankful I hung so high above them. Few of them had strong enough arms that the rotting vegetables, the shit, the dirt, and the hail of wood shavings and nails and stones they threw actually hit me. They would have ripped me to pieces had I come within reach of their hands. 
War has been hard on the people who live in Jorian. Some of them are refugees from the north. Perhaps a few pity me. I will never know. I never hear those voices. Now only a few remember my name, or only a few bother to pause and curse me. They are used to me here, but maybe that is worse. I forget my name sometimes for days on end. They don't remind me of it anymore. I cannot turn their hate into strength for myself, living on it as a dog laps water on a hot day, if they do not remember to hate me. Even the woman who brings me my porridge each day no longer bothers to spit in it before she hands it over to me. How many years have I been imprisoned here, in this prison, hung out like a songbird's cage? The bars are weathering and gray, the bench on which I sleep, swaying in the night wind, cracked and splintered. Gaps in the floorboards show the ground, littered with my refuse, and the refuse thrown at me far below. Too far to jump, even if I could pry open the locked door that abuts the parapet, even if I could break apart the thick bars. Perhaps it would be better to jump and be done with it. A songbird is treated gently for the song it may sing for its master. I know the song they wish me to sing for all to see. God help me. Let me not descend into madness. Let me not weaken. It is so hard. How many years? One year? Two? Five? I see my hands are weathered though whether from age or exposure I do not know. I see my nails grow long, filthy and cracked. They curl at the ends. I break them off when they get in the way of eating, of caring for myself such as I can. I do not know how many years it has been. The woman who brings my food is my only mirror, and she is a new woman every season, so I cannot track my days by watching her age. She never ages, because she is always young. I have no knowledge by which to track the time except the round of stars and the procession of spring into summer, summer into winter, and winter into spring. Three winters I think I have been here, but perhaps it is four. I hang in limbo, suspended in this cage, this purgatory. How fares my brother? I pray you, God, watch over him and over my husband. The watchmen tell me sometimes my brother is dead. They taunt me with it, his death, his dead body eaten by crows. I do not believe them. I cannot believe them. They must be lying. But I don't know. I know nothing but the opening of the gates at dawn and their closing at dusk, I know nothing except that the sun rises every morning without fail, and that night comes and passes and comes again. I must not believe them. Today I hear a horn. At dawn the gates open. This activity I watch each morning, the opening of the gates below. It is one of my talismans. By this means I remember I am alive. Today no farmers march out to their fields. 
No peddlers scurry out with bundles on their back. No carts or wagons roll out onto the morning road. They come instead, the lords and knights and ladies of Jorian Castle, in their bright procession, their fine clothing so painful that I shade my eyes, for I am dressed now in rags, though once this gown was what any decent woman would be proud to wear in her brother's hall, entertaining guests, coaxing reluctant allies to throw in their lot with his desperate cause. The noble folk of Jorian Castle, no greater in rank than I, flood forth in their brilliant procession. They are off to hunt, I think, for they have hounds aplenty romping beside them or taut under leash, and their horses are caparisoned as for a gala festival. They are not alone. They are led by their master, the young Duke of Jorian. He is, I see, not yet an old man, so must I be not yet an old woman. The master of Jorian and I were of an age once, and I suppose we remain so now, although he walks in freedom, and I wait, hanging in this prison. My lips are unused to smiling. I feel them crack as the corners turn up, as I remember what everyone said. His father, the old duke, died of apoplexy the night after my brother and I escaped from this castle. How the sun hates me, even after so many years. He looks up, though the others ignore me. I am no longer of interest to them. I am ugly and dirty and mad and lost, and sometimes it seems I am a hundred years old. But he never neglects to look up. He always marks me on his comings and goings. He looks, and he smiles, in answer to my smile. I remember his smile. The magician stayed for an entire month, while we wined them and dined them better than we ate ourselves, and then they went away. But they left behind them promises, or so my brother said. I asked him how one can hold a promise and suggested he would have been better off asking for a wagon load of spears and a herd of cattle. He laughed and agreed. Of course, you see, I could never be angry with him because he always agreed with me. That he went and did as he wished made no difference to his amiability. When Duncan rode in, empty-handed, from the Alarn clan, my brother decided then and there to journey to Alarn himself. It is true he needed the Alarn clan to swell his army, such as it was. He needed their support. He needed the support of every ancient lord and old retainer who had once sworn fealty to our father, especially the ill-tempered and independent lords of the craggy North Country highlands. If you have not the riches of the South, then you need the rock-hard stubbornness of the North. Gold is not harder than granite. It was a difficult road into Alarn country. The paths were the known haunts of bandits, so, despite my irritable objections, the ladies were left behind. Even Duncan protested that it might be too difficult for women, though he truly did not want to leave me. His mother and young sister were among the ladies who lived now for part of the year in Islamay Castle, 
and for the rest moved to other estates with my brother or some group of his adherents. Of course you could make the journey, Mary, said my brother sweetly. But what of the others? What of Widow Agnes and Lady Day? They are not strong like you. I must leave someone to watch over them. So I remained behind. We stayed another month, we ladies, twelve of us and our servants. But as autumn laid in its bitter store of cold and the meager harvest was brought to the hearth to be measured and stored, I knew we would have to split up and move south. I sent Widow Agnes and Lady Day and most of the other ladies to the western estate of Lord Day, the lady's husband. It had a milder climate, but was more vulnerable to raids from the south. Duncan's mother and younger sister I kept by me, for I was fond of them. I knew I could love Duncan soon after I first met him, not just for himself, but because of the care he took of his widowed mother and his dear sister. We rode east to the fortress of old Lord Craig, an inhospitable setting, but rather safer than the valley manor of Lord Day. It was not a trap, precisely. It was only that I did not know that in the skirmishes that raged in the border country, Craig Fortress had just fallen to the Duke of Jorian. Few riders dared the high roads alone, and it was easy to miss a fleeing messenger on the road. I did not know, as I rode into the courtyard, where peace reigned, and some few men whose faces I did not recognize stared at me in surprise, that but three days earlier Lord Craig had been deposed and sent to the tower. I did not know until they escorted me, with all due respect, into the hall, and I faced the man who sat in the high chair. And the young Duke of Jorian smiled, that smile at me. So the woman who killed my father walks like a lamb into my hands, he said, when they put the chains on my wrists and neck. How the son hated me, even after so many years. But like his father before him, he was ambitious. He wanted reward more than revenge. So he took me south with Duncan's mother and young sister to the court of my uncle the king. The king had mercy on the old and the young. Let them be placed in a convent, he said, and I was not even allowed to kiss them nor they me, before they were led away. But you, he said, turning to look on me, you I have promised a hanging. Hang me if you will, I said, smiling. It will not alter my brother's cause, nor the outcome, for the just shall triumph, and the wicked perish. It will give him a martyr, he muttered. He twisted the rings on his hands musingly, for he had many rings, gold encrusted with rubies and diamonds, a black opal set in silver, a ring of green malachite, and one of turquoise that had once been my mother's, but had failed to change color when danger loomed, as turquoise was said to do. Most impressively, the large seal ring of the king's authority half covered the knuckle of his right middle finger. He wore a hoopland sewn of brilliant blue cloth embroidered with small gold crowns, trimmed with ermine at the neck and lined with a heavy cloth of gold. The hem was beaded with pearls. The crown that rested so easily on his brow, 
I had last seen on my father's head. At last he stilled himself and came to some conclusion. I was not afraid of him, not then, not yet. I knew my cause was just, and I knew I was stronger than he was, because I was not afraid of death. And he knew I was not afraid. But I should have been afraid. Only a man as cunning as he could have stolen the throne and crown and scepter and husbanded it so well. He smiled oddly and crookedly and beckoned to the Duke of Dorian, calling him before the rest. These words did the king, my uncle, the usurper, speak. Hang her in a cage at the gates of Dorian, so that all may see and abuse the sister of the traitor. All may see that I hold captive that which gives him strength. How many years has it been since I was captured? It is so cold in the winter. I am so weary of the cold. But it is not cold now. It is not even autumn, the season for hunting. I see by the green of the fields and the ripening fruit in the orchard beyond the moat that it is summer, the season for war. They are not hunting at all. Here they come back so soon. Too soon. They are so cheerful, the young lovers gazing at each other, the men boasting and laughing, the women talking sternly of serious matters or giggling over light ones. I do not exist to them. I am nothing. I am Mary. They are no longer alone. They have gone out in such festive attire not to hunt, but to greet he who has come to Jorian, ridden north at long last. No army that size has ever marched behind my brother's standard. Great clouds of dust mark their coming, and I see the king, my uncle's standard, at the head of the army, long after I see that an army has come to Jorian. The duke and his company ride at the head of the procession, flanking the king, my uncle. I curse him. All the words I have ever heard cursed and spat at me, but he does not even look up. He does not even seem to know I exist. He does not even glance my way or at the cage, as if I have become invisible, as if I no longer matter. I must matter. I have to matter. Am I not my brother's strength? Isn't that what everyone has always said? The nobles enter the town and the gates close behind them. Out, beyond the walls of Jorian, the army encamps. Their tents cover the fields like locusts. God help me. I am so weary. The woman brings porridge that night, and this night she remembers to spit in it first, as if the king's presence has reminded her that she must hate me. Almost I recoil, too sickened by the gesture to eat. But then I remember that I must eat, and that her hatred is a spice to make the bland porridge taste better, to be more nourishing to me in my solitude. She speaks to me, though this woman has never spoken to me before. His majesty has brought the whole army, hasn't he? She says with a coarse grin. There's a big battle to be fought, 
isn't there? And that will make short work of that traitor of yours. Is that why the king, my uncle, did not look at me? Does he know I am truly nothing now? That he has pikes and swords and shields enough, soldiers enough, armor and gold enough to defeat my brother, even though I still live? Their campfires burn like stars fallen to earth. I see no end to them as I stare out all through the long, long night. Let me not weaken. Let me not fall into despair. At dawn the gates open and the mobs come with their curses and their stones and their shit and their rotting meat and fruit. I cower by the bench, arms flung up to cover my face. An ancient mildewing apple splatters against my thigh. A stone grazes my elbow. I have forgotten what their abuse is like. They are themselves the hammer, beating me down. They are themselves the hands, strangling the breath out of me. My tattered shawl cannot cover me. I have no armor. I am weaker than I was in the beginning. I begin to cry, and seeing that, their clamor increases. I am peppered with stones, each one a nail driven into my skin. Please, God, let this cease. The horns call, and at last the mob retreats from the road to let the nobles pass through the gates. They ride in their glory, the men arrayed for campaign, and the women with their false brave faces to goad on their menfolk. He comes, the king, my uncle. He draws up his horse below me, and yet by every aspect above me. He wears a fine white surcoat over his armor, glittering in the sunlight, magnificent. Gold embroidery traces the symbols of crown and scepter on the surcoat. His sword is my father's sword, the scabbard plated with gold and the hilt fixed with jewels. He is an older man now, silver-haired, and yet by no measure weak. He raises his gaze to touch me. And it is worse than the stones and all the rotten things that have ever been thrown at me. But I must show a brave, false face. He must not sense my weakness and my despair. I dry my tears and strangle my sobs in my throat. He speaks. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, he taunts. Are you still there, hanging? Or is that another woman, another criminal, who hangs there in fitting punishment for her crime? I say nothing. If I speak, I will betray my weakness. He must never know. Do you even know your name? He demands. Do you remember how to talk or who you are? He laughs, delighted by this prospect, that I have gone utterly mad. Dear God, how I wish to speak sharply to him while all can hear, for the mob and the nobles and the army all look this way, and many can hear his voice. But I am too weak to answer. My voice will break if I even have a voice left. Do you even know it has been seven years? He says. Your brother the traitor is married now, and they say he has a girl child whom he named Mary. 
but his wife will be a widow soon, and the child fatherless, and you brotherless. I am going to hunt him down whether it takes a month or a year or five years, and you shall hang there, my dear niece. You will never know the outcome. That is what I have decreed, that you wait and always wonder. That will be your reward for your treason toward me. He turns, triumphant, still laughing, and rides away. His army follows him, and the clouds of dust that mark their passing are visible long into the day. My voice has vanished. It has fled, along with my reason. Oh, God. Oh, God. Seven years. Why fight any more? How can I go on? How did it get to be night so soon? For it is night, or night coming on. It is twilight, the quarter moon hanging low in the sky, soon to set. The gates are closing, and the last traffic of the day quickens to gain entry before night falls. I sit slumped on the bench, staring, just staring. Why fight any more? How can I go on? How can my brother defeat such an army? How can he defeat a king who is so rich and so cunning? Why bother to go on? I am so weary. I am mad and lost and a hundred years old. I stare at the stars above, but I see no patterns in their spray of light. I only see the campfires of my uncle's army. Shadows stir and fragment and coalesce along the roadway. A man, or is it a woman, emerges briefly from the shadows onto the road and, unable to pass up a last chance on this awful day to insult me, throws a big stone. It bangs against the slats and falls inside to land with a thunk on one of the splintering planks. But it is no stone. Suddenly I sway forward and grab the thing lying there. My hand touches a small, rectangular package of cloth, concealing something hard. I open it, surprised. By the dim light of the quarter moon, I see what lies inside. A pack of painted cards. I look up, but there is no trace on the roadway of that person, half-glimpsed, who threw these up here. I see only shadows as twilight fades to full night. I handle the cards for a long, long time that night, though it is too dark to see them. I feel them. I trace the film of paint on each card, and I remember what each one is. For the twilight mage, in his month at my brother's hall, taught me the meaning of each card. I only learned this knowledge then to pass the time while I waited for Duncan to return. I never dreamed I would be glad, someday, to remember it all. Near dawn, I bind them up again and tuck them into my filthy bodice. Should anyone suspect I had them, they would be taken from me. I hoard them for seven nights as the moon waxes. I hoard them until there is light enough to see for eyes trained in darkness as mine are now. The mobs come every day while I wait, but I think only of the cards. I do not hear their voices. I wait 
until the watchmen meet and turn on the parapet below and head away from my cage, before I shuffle the cards and set them down. I have already picked a significator. The Knight of Swords. I lay it down and ask my question. Where will my brother be next year? It is the only question I know how to ask. Placed atop it, the current situation. I turn the next card over. Seven of Swords. It is hard to remember, but here in my cage, memory is all I have. Thievery. Something stolen. I turn another card and lay it athwart the first two. Crossed by, I turn another card. The wheel. Fate. His situation is going to change. I pick up another card and set it down below the first three. At the base of matters. Strength. The woman holding the lion. Tears sting me and I brush them back impatiently. Have I not always been strong? Will it still and always be demanded of me? Next, what is passing away? The card I turn over now shows a heart pierced by three swords. Three of swords. Sorrow. For the first time in many years, years whose count I have lost track of, I feel hope stirring in my heart. Hope is so painful. The watchmen return on their round, and I must wait in stillness while they pause, stare at the sky, hiss a joke one to the other, and laugh boisterously, then at last spin and head back each on their separate slow walk of the parapet. But I am used to waiting. What crowns the matter? When I think of crowns, I can only think of my uncle in his crown-embroidered hoopland, condemning me to this cage. I can only think of my father's crown resting on the usurper's head. I can only think of his victory and our defeat, our escape as children into the summer's night that led me at the last to this cage. But memory is a strange thing, like a fish in the shallows, darting suddenly into view when before it was invisible to the eye. All at once I remember what the magician said, that what crowns the matter is how the situation appears now, what seems to be coming in the near future, but which may not be true. I turn the card to see a man standing with his hoe, eyeing a verdant bush now blooming with seven pentangles, reaping the rewards of hard work. Is it for naught? Will my brother's rebellion, now more than seven years old, be fruitless? Once begun, a reading must be ended. I turn the next card. What is coming into being? The hanged man. Almost I weep with frustration but the magician told me that the hanged man represents waiting, not defeat. Bide your time, I whisper to myself, and that voice, my voice, gives me the strength to go on. Now I draw the last four cards. First, I turn the card which represents my brother, his inner being. A man battles with a staff, 
six more below him. Seven of staves. Success against the odds. What influences him? I gasp, for now, appearing in the pale light of the waxing moon on the warped plank floor before me, stands the magician. His wishes and fears. An angel blows the horn as the dead arise. Judgment. Is judgment not all my brother ever wished for? But I hesitate before I turn the last card, because it signifies the outcome. I wait so long, trembling, that the watchmen return on their round. One spits over the parapet as the other gossips, and then they turn about and each goes on his way before I gather enough courage to turn that card. Only the gullible believe in fortune-tellers and magicians. But I have nothing left. Nothing but this. I close my eyes and turn over the card, fingering the patterns in the paint. At last, I look. The world. Utter success. My breath comes in bursts and I feel dizzy. God help me. Let me not fall into madness. I slide the cards roughly together and shuffle them again violently. I will read the cards again. I cannot trust myself, my eyes in this moonlight, my terrible hope. I saw the king, my uncle, ride out with his great army, and I know that as seven years passed without my knowledge, it could take another seven for this struggle to end. I search through the pack and take out the Knight of Swords. But then I remember what the Twilight Magician said, that the same question must not be asked a second time on the same day. I am shaking now so hard I drop the card and almost lose it between the warping planks. A cloud covers the moon and I weep in silence. I must never let the Watchmen know I weep. It is so hard. Hope is not enough to live on. But I can ask another question. I can ask a different question. The moon emerges at last from the clouds. The watchmen meet and move away again. I root through the cards and draw him out. The king, my uncle. King of swords. The little emperor. I place the card firmly in the center place. The significator. Where will my uncle be next year? I ask. Covered by. I flip a card. The five of staves. Conflict. Crossing it, I sit down. The knight of swords. The whispered words are like a second voice in my ear. Surely this is no coincidence, though I shuffled the cards very, very well. Too well too violently in my anger and terror and pain, bending some, chipping off a few flecks of paint on others before this second reading. At the base of matters, the devil, malevolence, what is passing away, the emperor. I glance at the road, visible in the moonlight, but although there are shadows, nothing lurks there. No person waits, watching me read. Yet I feel his, her 
gaze on me. I feel her, his presence beside me, even though I know it is impossible. I am alone, as the king my uncle decreed. What crowns the matter? Eight of staves. Quick success. What is coming into being? Seven of cups. Illusory success. Yet I saw him march out on that road with a huge army. I heard him, in his confidence, abuse me and promise victory for himself and death for my brother. There are four cards left to turn. The watchmen come and gossip and leave. The moon rides higher in the sky, which is bleached almost gray by its light. I turn the next card. His inner being. A man sits with each foot on a pentangle, a pentangle resting on his head and a fourth gripped in his arms. Four of pentangles. The hoarder. The usurper. What influences him? Here, now, floats a hand in the air, cupping a pentangle, the ace. Material wealth and success. His wishes and fears. When I turn over the card, I stare at first, thinking I am only remembering and not actually seeing what lies before me right now. Memory, like a fish, can quickly dart out of view and leave you grasping at shadows. Then I blink. The angel, with his trumpet, still plays as the dead rise. Judgment. So, too, in this reading, does judgment lead to the outcome. I turn the last, the final, card to see a dead man pinned to the ground by ten swords. Ten of swords, the mage taught me so long ago, seven years ago and more, I now know. Complete and utter defeat. I look at this card for a long time. Then quietly, carefully, I gather up the cards, bind them in cloth, and hide them away. Now, for the first time in seven years, I weep as loud and long as I wish. I do not care if the watchmen hear me. I do not care if they curse me or gloat or report to my jailers that I have at long last broken. At dawn... A messenger rides in at a gallop, even before the gates are open. He shouts, jumps off his horse to pound at the gates, and finally they swing open and he hurries inside. Later, I hear the sounds of celebration. The woman who brings my porridge makes sure to spit in it first before she hands it to me. There's come news, hasn't there? She says, smirking. There's been a battle, and the traitor's folk have retreated up into the hills. But I only smile, take the bowl from her, and eat the food that is spiced with hatred. The cards nestle hidden inside my bodice. I will be patient. I will wait. I know the usurper is fated to fail, and that my brother will triumph in the end. I can endure whatever they throw at me until the day I am freed. That is my strength, is it not? That I will never give in.
that I will never give up. Whew. Locked in the cage for seven years. Well, there's very few stories on the show that dwells on any sort of torture, but being stuck in the protagonist's situation sounds pretty unbearable. That's true. And yet, the story is telling us that even in confinement as unbearable as this one, our protagonist finds a way to endure. It's showing us agency in the last place we would expect to find it, but where we shouldn't be surprised to find it. Yeah, and what strikes me most about the story is a focus on a POV that isn't often seen in epic fantasy. So it feels unique, you know? Uh, Any other Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, what have you, high fantasy would have focused on the brother and the uncle and not the sister left behind. And that simple choice rewires our expectations and opens up new and non-traditional ways of experiencing high fantasy, ways that expand the genre's boundaries for the better, in my opinion. Yeah, it feels quite feminist in a way to to show a different kind of strength besides what happens on the battlefield or political intrigue in the courts. Totally. It's a celebration of resilience. The protagonist has an entire world set against her. We know she's at the mercy of forces she can never conquer, but we also know that these forces will never break her. This is the kind of character Kate Elliott is famous for and which she excels at crafting. Thanks, Diana. Join us next time to hear an unsettling story about a camp counselor who discovers something evil lurking nearby. And whether you just discover this podcast or have been following since the beginning, don't forget to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews like yours help keep the show going week after week. So until next time, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 53, features The Gates of Jorian by Kate Elliott. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Osadolihi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw and executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Diana M. Foe. Performed by Rachel Fulginetti. Audio produced by Tidef Studios. Additional editing by Angela Yi. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>